this, 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 this show is brought to you by Safety FM. The Hop Nerd Podcast is brought to you by Hop University. At Hop University, we cut the bullshit out of human and organizational performance training. We were born out of necessity. We hear it all the time. Human and organizational performance courses are expensive and hard to find. Safety classes put me to sleep. Help. So we did. We offer on-demand, high-quality online courses in human and organizational performance, safety, and leadership, all led by seasoned safety and hot practitioners. No need to schedule time for that conference. No need to track down the latest guru. And no stuffy classroom required. Join us today at hopuniversity.org. That's H-O-P-University.org. everybody. It is Sam Goodman, the Hop Nerd, bringing you another episode of the Hop Nerd Podcast. How are you doing? How are things going for you out there in this weird and wacky world in which we find ourselves? Before we even go any farther, I want to challenge you to do something. I want you to pick up your phone right now, and I want you to call somebody. I don't want you to text. I want you to call. I want you to call a friend. I want you to call a family member. I want you to reach out to a coworker, whatever, somebody that you care about, somebody that you love, and I want you to check on them and see how they're doing. I want you to just give them a call, FaceTime them would be even better, and just have a conversation. It's back to the message that we've been sharing since we found ourselves in this weird thing. We're isolated, but we shouldn't be hiding. We should be helping, not hiding. And that's all I've got. So please, please do that for me. Before we get started or go too much further, also head over to the website, www.thehopnerd.com. Follow along on all things social media. All that social media crap, we're pretty much everywhere at The Hop Nerd. It's, we're really easy to find. We're e- really easy to get, get into contact with. You would think that we designed it that way. But we are. So get a hold of us. Let's get that conversation started. My guest today really doesn't need much introduction. So I'm going to shut up. Here's Sidney Decker. Well, I am joined today by the one and the only Sidney Decker. I don't think he needs much of an introduction. Uh, he's he's a best-selling author, uh, obviously into human factors and safety. He's also a pilot. Uh, good morning, Sidney. Well, good morning to you. It's good afternoon for me. Hey there, Sam. How are things treating you today? No, it's all good. Thank you, my friend. It's a strange situation, obviously, for everyone right now. But, uh, you know, you and I can claim that we still have sort of uh, a job. So and that's right. uh, that's probably not true for all the listeners, I, uh, I would uh, assume. So good luck to all you folks out there. No, absolutely. Um, thank you once again for joining us. We were just chatting a little bit before we started, and we're just happy to have you here. I I'm, I'm look forward to picking your brain a little bit. Uh, to level with you, you have been the most requested person. For, for for the podcast. So you were here. I'm sure people are going to be excited. It's going to be great. So a, a lot of the questions that uh, I'm going to kind of ask to you are really stuff that folks have kind of sent over or common questions that, that they have. Uh, and just to level with you, a lot of it isn't around just culture. So a a lot of conversation there. Um, One of the the biggest things that we hear, uh, a significant amount of leaders, managers, uh, and executives, they tend to toss around words like accountability and responsibility. Mm. And what Mm. they often mean is really culpability or the use of the stick, some means of extracting punishment upon wrongdoers within the organization. You know, somebody that was complacent or didn't follow the rules. Um, Many of those leaders – 
they feel that that's needed for some reason. Uh, they feel that they'll lose control without carrying a big stick. What, what would you share with those leaders? What, how could we go down a different path? <laughs> oh, big, Sam, big where question. to start? <laughs> no, nah, but the big questions are good. Big questions are good. Complex problems are, uh, are the most interesting ones. The first one I want to recommend to them is to stop peeing in your pants management, right? And so yeah. what, what that means is, um, uh, you know, anybody who's had kids probably has seen this happen in, in their kid, right? You go, Oh, I think the kid's got to go, right? And then there's no opportunity to let the kid go. And you go, Oh my God, how are we going to solve this? And the kid looks, looks increasingly scrunched up and, Oh man, I have to do something. I have to do something, right? Yeah. Uh, and you go, No, 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 no. And then the kid lets go. And, and, you know, it clashes on through the street or wherever it ends up. And, and so, um, the, um, uh, I, I see the same sort of behavior in, uh, in, in, in leaders who feel they have to take a stand or do something or respond to the latest sign of some, uh, deviation that they want to make an example of or, or make very clear that they, uh, that they draw the line there and there is a boundary to be patrolled. Mm-hmm. Um, but the problem with that sort of peeing in your pants management is, you know, you look, you, you feel relieved and, 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 um, uh, satisfied that you've done something just like the kid that let go. Um, but once it's out, you know, 30 seconds later, uh, two things happen, right? First, you begin to stink. And second, you start to look like a fool. Right. And so, um, hold it in. That's the first recommendation. Hold it in. Don't respond without a serious learning review, right? And I'm sure a lot in the hop community know exactly what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. Don't think in terms of investigation because, I mean, that word gives you all the wrong sort of um, uh, uh, hints, right? Investigation. That means, you know, there's, there's, there's probably somebody culpable and something went wrong and that's a cause and the cause can be traced back to a culpable human being, you know? No, right. it's a learning review. Nobody comes to work to do a bad job. Nobody comes to work to do a bad job, Sam. And that's the, right. you know, that really is the alpha and the omega of the hop community. If we cannot gather around that basic principle of what, you know, Jens Rasmus and everyone back in the, um, back in the seventies started calling local rationality, mm-hmm. um, right. People do what makes sense to them at the time, given their circumstances, given their goals that they've been, uh, given by the organization that they work for, given the uh, focus of attention, given the constraints and time pressures and everything, and, you know, they're working under and the imperfect designs that are probably error, um, error inviting rather than error tolerant, error intolerant. Um, if people come to work to do a good job and that's your starting point, then you can never start an investigation thinking, I'm going to find the culpable one mm-hmm. because there is nobody culpable, right? right? People, you know, if people were doing what they wanted to do, they'd probably be sitting home on the couch having a beer or something, right? right. They wouldn't be working <laughs> right. for you. Right? They're doing your job. They're solving mm-hmm. your problems. They're helping you make money, you know? So, so from that perspective, um, Man, I'm on a rant already, but no, keep uh, going. But, well, yeah, but <laughs> but leaders, leaders probably. I mean, I know what they're going to say. They're going to say, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's all really cute, Decker, but I have to hold somebody accountable, you know, because yeah. otherwise, I'm not a I'm not seen as a leader. Um, right. I think that is absolute um, masculine nonsense. Mm-hmm. It absolutely. is it is BS. Um, mm-hmm. You can be seen as a leader when you are passionate when you actually give a damn about the people who come to work to do work for you you can be seen as a really strong leader if you suspend your judgment if you don't jump in and do something because you feel you believe you have this myth in your head 
that you need to be seen to be doing something. Nonsense. Nonsense. Right. Great leaders ponder. I mean, go back to the Greeks two and a half thousand yeah. years ago. I mean, the greatest leaders weren't the one, you know, ones who shot from the hip. Well, there's none to shoot from the hip with, but right. you know, they weren't those sorts of guys. They were the guys who were thinking, you know, and when you look at the philosophies those guys come up with, you know, stoicism, for example, mm-hmm. it was born on the battlefield. Right. It wasn't sort of thought up in some in some uh, you know, nice little cozy uh, chamber where you could sit and drink and eat your grapes or something. No, mm-hmm. um, it was born in the battlefield. But they found out that in those heated situations, those moments where there's lots of time pressure, critical things going on, the one that emerges as the leader is the one who's able to step back and say, all right, let's take a breath. All right. I am not going to be standing here pissing in my pants because I need to be seen to be doing something because I don't want to be the one ending up who stinks and looks like a fool. Right. How much of that, um, how much of that mindset comes from the organization's really underlying beliefs around human error? Yeah, it's a good question, Sam. And in, in fact, I'd like to blow that out and say it's yeah. not just the organization's beliefs. I think mm-hmm. it is in, in a sense. Um, the cultures or countries belief. Mm, sure. And because there is a significant difference when you, you know, I, I travel. Well, okay. For the record, <laughs> I'm not traveling at all, <laughs> but, um, I, it's a welcome I to was, break at the moment, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm writing another book. So, you know, that's, uh, uh, so that's what you do in the break. But, um, I, uh, I used to travel a lot <laughs> across all kinds of different countries. And there is something specific that, uh, that the, uh, particularly North Americans and, and you guys, I mean, the U.S. more than Canada, uh, believe about human choice and freedom mm-hmm. of human choice, right? And it is part of your founding myth. It is part of the myth of the country that you are and, yeah. and, and which makes you such an attractive, you know, both destination and target and depending mm-hmm. on who you ask. But, um, the, um, Max Weber, the German sociologist that came to visit, right? Like, a, oh, more than a hundred years ago. Um, he saw this and he described it as sort of the, um, the Protestant ethic. You know, I think the Catholics did it as well in the Jewish community in the U.S. But the idea that if you, um, and he found it to be much, I'll explain it in a second what it is, but what he thought it was, but, um, uh, he found it to be present in much stronger way in the U.S. than in all of his uh, his work in Europe. Um, so he comes in and he sees a country that is organized around uh, individual choice. And um, the idea that if you are successful in life, it is because you made good choices mm-hmm. and you expended a lot of hard effort and you put in the hard yards and you, right. um, you did your best. Um, and effort pays off. I mean, this has always been the idea uh, underneath the American dream, right? Which, which has come under severe pressure, as we all know. And statistically, right. there is no such thing anymore, you know, mm-hmm. compared to other countries that are much better at having an American dream, like Denmark. Right. You know? right. But right. never mind. Um, that's, they have an inscrutable language. So that's, that's not an option for most. But, um, but the, um, but the idea by, behind the American dream is that effort pays off, right? Now, the flip side of that is that if you are unsuccessful, if you end up in a bad situation, an incident and broken stuff in your hands and you look and go, how the hell did that happen? Very quickly, that very script of this Protestant ethic that Weber saw more than a hundred years ago turns into poor choices by the individual that led to the outcome. And there is much less of a tendency in the U.S. to look for attenuating circumstances in the environment that actually 
produce the behavior in question. And that will, if you leave it there, produce the behavior in question again, right. which is, right. of course, where the hop community comes in, right? And as I wrote, you know, in the field guide to understanding human error 20 years ago, you can either fire someone, you know, which doesn't fix anything, or actually learn, you know, you can, you can punish or learn, you can sanction or learn, you got to make the choice, right? right. And the hop communities right. pick this up. And, and elevated it to its mantra, which is beautiful, right, right? right? That you can, you know, firing fixes nothing. You can either, you can either punish or learn. And, you know, I said this 20 years ago. And so the, um, and I'm, I'm sure that many of the hop nerds have, uh, have, have read the field guide. And if they haven't, right. they'd be yep. better. But, uh, That's one of the first so, recommended readings that I pass on people. Actually. <laughs> <laughs> it's I started, the yeah. I, I started kind of backwards. I, I had uh, I had the opportunity to hang out with Todd Conklin uh, a while back, and that's what I shared with him is that, that the first book that I read that started me down this path was actually Safety Differently, and not one of his. And he got a, he got quite the kick out of that that I started with Safety <laughs> Differently. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a behemoth. It's a terrible book, Sam. It's definitely not like what it. I recommend. Wow, you are but, you're a masochist. It's a, I'm a nerd. It's, it's <laughs> you nerd. This is true. This is true. This is true. No, but I would not recommend um, uh, uh, people who haven't had any contact with this stuff to read Safety Differently. Right. It's uh, right. I mean, it's it was a necessary book, right, to lay out the theoretical depth and the scholarship right. behind all the ideas, and and so. Um, I, I'm not apologizing for the existence of the book, but as an entry level text, it wouldn't, no, it wouldn't right, meet that right. criterion. Well, it's, it's interesting uh, as we kind of talked about those, those underlying assumptions about human error and, and really to oversimplify, you know, viewing human error as a choice in most situations and, and many organizations still hold that belief that people choose to make errors that, that naturally leads us down this path that bad things happen to bad people. Right, that if, yeah. if, if, kind of to the point that if people would have only cared more, tried harder, paid more attention, then the bad outcome would have never happened. And that seems to naturally lead organizations down that path of retribution to, to desire extracting that pound of flesh. Uh, how do you, how does, how does an organization start about combating that? Right. Um, the first step, as I, as I suggested initially was to, uh, is to hold your breath, is in not, not feel that you need to act immediately. The second is to actually be aware of and then develop for yourself a viable alternative because leaders are not going to throw out a strategy that has patently not been working. Um, but right. you know, they won't throw it out on the evidence of it not working <laughs> because if they don't have something to replace it, if they don't have something to replace it, you know, you cannot, you cannot ask, uh, a leader to throw out a paradigm. I mean, Tom Kuhn wrote about this, you know, way back, um, in the, the structure of scientific revolutions, right? Which sold better than the Bible, by the way, right? And so, uh, so it's been quite a popular book. Um, the, um, that, that people will not give up a paradigm that is a framework of thinking if there's not a viable alternative to take its place. And the viable alternative exists, right? For those of you who've read Just Culture, the third edition, will know that, that, um, or seen the Just Culture movie for that matter, uh, will know that the viable alternative is instead of retribution, it is risk restoration. It is, you know, it's the type of thing that the hop nerds do when they begin a learning review, which is non-judgmental, which is about discovery, about curiosity, about open-mindedness about learning about normal work right. now but the, the very clear distinction is this right if you have a retributive just culture and um it's it's, it's even sort of a a uh, a contradiction in terms but um the um uh, which which you know a lot of people in the u.s are selling you know as if as if you can solve it this way um which basically asks three questions right um uh, which rule was broken how bad was that breach and thus what should the consequences be yeah. 
Yeah. And then what you get in some of these products that people sell off the shelf, which is an extraordinarily bad idea, um, is that you, you know, they give you the impression that you can answer, um, particularly that second question, right? How bad was that breach by sort of categorizing or pigeonholing, uh, uh human behavior? It's, it's an, it's a true McDonaldization of, of justice, you know? Well, is it this box or would you like a double burger on it? You know, right, well, right, right. I mean, they're not serving anyone right now, really. Right, but, right. Um, so, but, and, and, um, it, it makes it utterly superficial and it doesn't solve anything because right. it leaves the hard question for the people who need to make that judgment. Well, which box are we going to stick it in? Is this at risk behavior? Have they done it before? Mm-hmm. Have they done it before? Well, yeah, probably because otherwise it doesn't get the job done, right. you know? <laughs> right. And so you either follow all the rules or you do the bloody job, right? right? And, and leaders who don't recognize that, and by the way, that's, that's sort of an underlying What's the right word? An underlying realization mm-hmm. and and empathy and compassion that they need to get to understand that, you know, there is a distance between, as Eric Holnagel beautifully calls, right, a mm-hmm. gap between work is imagined in your head as a leader and work is actually done where the guys are doing th- things – sorry, the, 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 the workers are doing things to, um, to, to deliver you the objective of the organization and live up to its mission. If they were going to follow all the rules, they're not going to get the job done, right? And we know this in the work to rule strike. Air traffic controllers are really good at it. Yeah. So, um, so yeah. Back to the uh, the question of, of of how bad was the breach? Um, there's breaches all the time. Otherwise, you can't get work done. And most often, these breaches don't lead to anything except a completed job, mm-hmm. right? So, um, if a if a leader doesn't get that, you know, there is no point in in engaging them in a discussion around uh, an alternative paradigm uh, for for just culture. That said, what is the alternative? The alternative is three very different questions. Three different questions, which is um, who is impacted by this? What do they need? And whose obligation is it to meet that need? All right. And that leads to a completely different conversation. It doesn't mean that people um, don't suffer consequences, right? right. Because they do. Um, you know, having to, for example, uh, fess up and, and, and uh, tell your colleagues or wider organization about your involvement in an evolving incident mm. um, can be both both hugely cathartic, hugely putative, hugely uh, embarrassing. Um, and yet it is a contribution to learning and quality improvement for everyone, right? right? And so, again, the stupidest thing is to fire the person involved because, you know, uh, as John Allspot, one of my uh, my students uh, once put it, you know, an incident is an investment that you have already made, mm. all right? You might as well get your damn return on right, investment. Right. You need, you need okay. to squeeze the money out of it at this point, right? Squeeze it out of it, which <laughs> right. means don't kick the person out who was involved because they're the embodiment right. of the lesson. Right. right. Well, in that particular example, as you said, as you, as we start to ask better questions, uh, that move us down a more restorative approach, uh, isn't that really creating an environment of more accountability? If we take oh, God, a restore, yeah. Yeah, a, yeah. A restorative approach, yeah. because not, not to, not to grossly oversimplify this, but especially on the backside of that, after the organization has responded to that event, we've asked those questions, we've responded to those questions, and we move into the process of learning. Um, often as we kind of move down the learning review or learning team model, um, we're involving the folks that that the event happened too, mm. <laughs> more often mm. than not. Mm. And, uh, you know, we're asking those folks to come together and solve that problem. That seems like a pretty high accountability environment to me. Um, I think, Sam, that you, um, that you have all of science behind you. You know, mm-hmm. if you see accountability and an account in, in sort of financial uh, or literally accounting terms, 
and a leader thinks like that, then they would come back to you and say, no, that's not accountability. Um, right. But I think they've got the wrong end. Right. Accounting is about telling, is about showing, is about mm-hmm. giving an explanation for, right? Whether it's the figures in your, in your uh, annual books or whether it's a story that you tell about your involvement in an incident. Accounting to each other and accountability to each other is about telling stories and learning yeah. from those stories. Yeah. Again, whether the story is in words or pictures or, mm-hmm. or, or figures, doesn't matter. A, an account is something you tell, right? And if you if you are not able to move there and you stick with this belief that an account is something you have to settle or pay, mm. you're never going to bloody get it. You're not right. going to get it. Right. How, how much of this, and, and we talked several different things there. We, we really talked about uh, the, the, Desire to blame folks, uh, post event, uh, really the, the, uh, the, the views around human error. We talked about response a little bit, um, incident investigation, whatever we want to call it. Uh, how much of this comes from the desire to oversimplify things? Hmm. Um, yeah, Nietzsche has talked about that beautifully. Um, yeah. You know, who, uh, who, who, uh, writes inscrutably himself too, by the way. But, um, but the idea, you know, that he, that he, um, that he, uh, proposed was that, um, this, this, this search for cause is, uh, is an oversimplification, not necessarily because of the, the virtue of oversimplification itself, but oversimplification, um, uh, serves an important goal. And that goal is, the sense of control and a controllable universe and and the the idea that we can do things uh, so that we don't end up in bad situations ourselves and that is where blame comes in really handily right mm-hmm. if we can attach the reasons for why things went wrong to attributes of that particular individual then every time we do that we automatically write ourselves free you know, and say, oh, well, I don't have that attribute, so that won't happen right. to me. Right. And uh, Sam, I think that even happens right now with the folks, you know, who unfortunately get COVID-19. You know, mm-hmm. we probably go, oh, well, they probably shook someone's hand or stood right. too close or went yeah. for bagels somewhere. Or, right, right. Uh, you know, <laughs> um, and so even there and, – and even though we tell ourselves not to uh, be that judgmental um, – even if we can educate ourselves to not oversimplify mm-hmm. the the thirst for control for having a sense of being able to influence the universe in which we live so that we don't meet the fate of other unfortunate people um, it is according to Nietzsche right uh, what what drives all of this right um, I think it's it's interesting too because we we touched on this desire to to do things, right? And a lot of times it ends up being um, wielding of the stick towards a wrongdoer. But organizations in general, they, they almost seem to, not almost, they, they really do seem to over-respond when events occur uh, quite often. And it seems to lead us down this path of increased bureaucracy in and around the organization. We end up with, with corrective actions that end up being yeah. – Stand down this, retrain those, do this, do that. Another form here, another check sheet there. It's it's all ultimately seems like it's it's really stemming um, from blame because it seems like we're weaponizing human performance at that point. It seems like we're really saying, well, if you would have just used that checklist a little harder, 
<laughs> then nothing yeah. bad would have happened if you would have just done a a, a pre-task brief just a little bit harder. Uh, then then nothing bad would have happened. Um, most organizations that are starting down this path are really starting to realize all this clutter that exists in their organization now and, and starting to realize that it's, that it's not very useful uh, to, to where they're trying to go. Um, so how do you start down the path of decluttering uh, in your mm. organization? Mm. Because there, it seems like that's most of the organizations that, that I hear from, most of the practitioners that I talk to, um, even, even several years back in, in my normal day job, um, you know, I, I, you come, I come into contact with this quite a bit, that there seems to be, uh, more rules, more forms, oh, uh, God, yeah. more check yeah. sheets than we know yeah. what to do with, almost to the point to where it really harms more than it helps. I um, So let me respond to that question first by saying uh, there's a new book on the way that uh, that explains um, even better, I hope, than the uh, the recent one, uh, The Safety Anarchist, that I hope uh, some yep. of uh, the Hope yep. Nerds will have read. I love writing that book, by the way, yeah. The Safety Anarchist. It was, that was just so, such a fun polemic. But um, the... Um, uh, so there's another one uh, uh, on the way uh, soon that will uh, dive into this. I think you, um, in order to answer that question, Sam, um, let's divide it up into the psychological and the practical, mm-hmm. right? How do you start decluttering? The first is to find what psychological need increasing clutter has for leaders mm-hmm. in the organization. Because if it didn't have a, a type of organization, or sorry, psychological need for them, it probably wouldn't happen, right? right because right. I think most hop nerds uh, who are on who are on the cast would be able to agree that they would be able to show that increased clutter leads to decreased productivity. Right. That tool time goes down, right? That the workers need to spend more time filling in forms rather than actually fixing right. the job. That you know, I've seen some jobs where tool time is down to two hours. Right. in 15 minutes a day, you know, because of all the crap that sits on, on both ends of it. And so it's an astounding productivity loss. And so, but apparently that's not good enough of an argument because the psychological <laughs> factors that drive clutter um, need to be understood by hop nerds who really want to get their heads around this. And then we'll talk about the practical uh, things right. in, in a second. But the psychological need, Sam, is this. It's once again the need for control and liability management on the part of leadership. Mm. Now, the way to start attacking that as a hop nerd uh, is to tell the leader, look, give me the evidence that this piece of clutter is what the regulator or your lawyers are asking for. And it turns out, and so, but this is a very hard road to walk. And, um, you know, we're walking it in, uh, in, in various parallel ways in order to get some mileage. Hmm. Um, uh, but um, the, um, one of the things that we're doing is, is saying, uh, look, more clutter actually um, doesn't – first of all, it's not what the regulator asks. The regulator really doesn't give a damn about the five points on your on your little checklist, right? right. They don't care what is on right. your checklist. What they care about is that you have a safety management system in place mm-hmm. that gives them the confidence that you know what the hell you're doing, right? right? If you then come back and you're not doing what you have promised them in your safety management system, yeah, well, then you're screwed, of course, right? right. Well – I mean, that's, but that's so obvious. Um, so go back to the safety management system and don't promise that much, right? right? right. And so, so I remember the, the Woolworths experiment, right? Um, I was amazed when we found this out. Um, for those of you who've, uh, who've seen the, uh, the film Safety Differently, right? The documentary, mm-hmm. right? If you haven't, you gotta watch it, right? Absolutely. I mean, it's, 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 uh, it's from 
2017 and it's freely available. Um, it's got like tens of tens of thousands of views. Um, and, um, so talk of the town, right? So the, that documentary has got the Woolworths experiment in it. And what we found out was that the regulators involved in this organization, um, Actually, ultimately, when we stripped it all bare, right, because they had rules coming out the wazoo, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, what mops to use for cleaning up, what right, types right. of spills, uh, how many times to, uh, to wipe off the, um, the, uh, the, the glass pane of the, of the chicken deli counter. I mean, it was bizarre, you know, right. as, as if, you know, no, people cannot think for themselves. So we're going to write it all up. It's a completely Tayloristic universe, yeah, right? Yeah. 1911, Taylor saying, you know, <laughs> workers are dumb, uh, right? Managers and planners are smart right, right. and consultants are even smarter because right. managers aren't that smart. So they buy consultancy to tell them, Oh, you should, you should be wiping your chicken, chicken glass, you know, every 23 minutes, uh, under these temperature conditions. Um, and so, uh, Utterly bizarre. Right? Taking away the sheer uh, professionalism and joy and autonomy of the people actually doing work, you know. But right. you know, that's a different story. But um, anyway, so what what was really cool was to discover that we, we started digging into this, and we said, okay, well, let's pull out the legislation, right? And then let's pull out the regulations that this legislation leads to. And the regulations really didn't care about cleaning. It doesn't say anything, right? Um, it, and so the, um, the, uh, the interesting thing was that the only thing that they, that they, uh, required was that the, uh, the organization has a safety management system. Um, and that it, you know, within that safety management system, there's some relative consistency between what you do and what you say that you'll do. Right. Uh, but that, that is sort of understood. Um, and, the other thing is um, that they needed um, fire exit signs above the doors. Federal requirement couldn't negotiate that one away. That was it. That wow. was all that was needed. Wow. And so the rest was all self-imposed. You know, <laughs> and when you look at the research, sixty percent, up to sixty percent in mature economies like the U.S. Mm-hmm. of compliance requirements are now self-imposed. It's yeah. because of business-to-business requirements, because of. Uh, uh, contractor to client requirements. It's exactly. because of yeah. uh, internal audit and accountability requirements. All this crap, you know, no, there is no regulator. I, I promise you, there is no regulator that asks my university, um, to, uh, to, to ask me to show my taxi receipt for $23 for, you know, which then needs to get signed by four levels above me or something. You know, it, right, the right. regulator really has other things to do. You know? <laughs> right. And besides, given the type of governance we've had in the last 40 years, particularly in the U.S., the regulator right. doesn't have enough people. You no. know, you've stripped them bare. Right? <laughs> it's even been voices to, to, you know, to lay down OSHA altogether, you know. Right, right. Uh, right. So, um, out of uh, out of some of the more uh, libertarian circles mm-hmm. so yeah. um the um uh so do a reality check with your leadership and say well hang on right what is it that they're actually asking you to right. do and how much of it is are you imposing yourself right. once they begin to see that and that they have strung red tape in their own way so that their productivity harms and they, in fact, fail to meet other important goals that keep them in the seat as a leader. I think you get some motivation and you can start to deal with that psychology of it, right? Yeah. Um, so that's the psychological part. Then the practical part is to, but you know, a learning team would be a great place. And, and you, you help nerds know exactly how to do that. Right. Is to sit down and just ask the following question. What is the stupidest thing that you need to do to work here every day? Right. Right. Start there. And, and that, that's, I love that, you know, I, um, 
I come from, I grew up in uh, power generation, nuclear power generation in particular. Um, so I'm, I'm painfully aware of, of this, uh, if you just follow the rules, everything will be okay <laughs> kind of, kind of mindset. Yeah. It's, it's, it's like we continue to try to drive towards this perfect black line. And then we continue to kind of audit people against that black line when bad things happen and say, well, see, if you would have just been a little more in compliance, if you would have just followed the plan on wiping that glass six times, yep. then, then nothing bad would, would have happened. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you would, you would just, you, you had just touched on it just for a second, uh, in the space of kind of rules versus autonomy. Mm-hmm. Um, and what, what do you think around organizations? You know, we, we just mentioned that, or you just mentioned that, that about 60% of a lot of this stuff is just self-imposed. Uh, mm-hmm. Is it just a desire for the organization to keep a grip? Uh, or is it something else? Is it, is it something else entirely? I think, uh, I'll be back to Nietzsche. I think it's fear, mm-hmm. fear of liability, yeah. fear of being held accountable and not being able to come up with a good answer. Right. Well, you know about this incident or you know about this LTI, you know, um, what did you do about it? And you said, well, if you, you feel that you need to be able to say something, say, well, we, we put up some posters. Oh, right. that sounds like a good intervention, right? <laughs> BS posters <laughs> are the worst intervention, right? In fact, this should be the, this should be the hope nerds first assignment. When you go in an organization, rip the damn things exactly. off the walls. Okay. <laughs> because they have nothing to contribute other than telling other people to try a little harder, right? Exactly. I mean, they are the, Yep. It, it is always that, it seems like. It is always it is. this it conversation is. of you should care more, you should be more, you should try yep. harder. Uh, <laughs> and if you do, bad things will stop happening. And then we take that same, th- th- those same sayings and put them on banners and then we put them on screensavers. <laughs> oh, yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We think yeah. we're going to care our way into, into eliminating human error. <laughs> exactly. We set people up for failure. We give them shitty equipment to work with. Right, yeah. Not error tolerant. You know, we give them significant time pressure. We don't give them health insurance, which means right. they're probably you know, half sick. You know, um, yeah. they need to care for three kids at home. You know, whatever, right? We can pile yeah. all these pressures on and then it goes wrong. We go, well, why did you make a poor choice? <laughs> it's well, screwed up. Yeah, but Max Weber said this 120 years ago, man. Yeah. <laughs> We we're, should have known by now. We're finally catching on. It's, it's, it's well, it's, it's interesting because you, you bring up all of those pressures that folks face on a daily basis as they go yeah. out and they negotiate this work. And to me, what has always been interesting and, and what, what, what really piques my curiosity and, and what drove me down this path was that is that you could take the rule book and we could drag it into the parking lot and burn it and folks would still get it right. The majority. Oh, of hell time. yeah. Oh yeah. 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 And, and this has been. This has been proven, Sam. I mean, the, right. so remember the, um, the, the high reliability guys, right? Up in mm-hmm. Northern California. Right. I mean, what was their first world that, that sort of shocked them into the uh, realization that what you just said was, was, was true right. was the introduction of the, um, of the, of the Tomcat. Uh, mm-hmm. onto uh, onto the deck right of the of the aircraft carriers now the tomcat i mean it's a big jet right it's like half the size of an airbus weighs like 30 tons and it's wow. got all kinds of life stuff hanging off the wings and yeah. um and it's you know, it's got to land on the runway you know the size of your computer screen right and right, so right, right. um <laughs> the um and so they started to say well when you introduce this jet obviously you know where was the rule book for it to 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 do that safely right and right. and the navy guys come back and say i mean I, and by the way i know that the nuclear navy has got a lot of influence mm-hmm. over uh, nuclear power generation in the us yes. but they took yes. a very different very different mindset into it um but the uh, the aircraft carrier guys come back and say uh rules no no there were no rules <laughs> we we Fly the thing over. Uh, we give it a try. Doesn't work. We go around, do another one. You know? Rules 
follow practice, right? right? And so, and this is from the 1970s, these findings, right? We can't all of a sudden wake up and say, oh, we didn't know about that. Well, right. read, people, read. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and so, it seems like at some point our organizations have forgotten that uh, a procedure, as an example, is supposed to be a tool that helps us to accomplish work, not something that ties our hands and slows us down. Because no. it just seems that human nature will be to circumvent that process if it if it impacts our efficiency, right? Well, not only human nature, but organizational nature. Sure. I mean, an organization can't survive if that's the, right. the, the script by which it lives. Right. And so, and even in nuclear power, we know this, Sam, mm-hmm. despite its own protestations and say, oh no, we've got, you know, we don't do, we don't do a manual. We do shelves of manuals, right? right? right. And so what's this, what's this nonsense of having a, a procedure? No, 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 no. You get this wrong. <laughs> we have bookcases, right? <laughs> and so, um, now you guys are, you guys are off, off the chart. Um, yeah. but, um, but the Swedes came up with a beautiful realization, uh, which they started to call uh, malicious compliance. Mm. Right? Uh, Swedes uh, were generating about 60% of the power from nuclear uh, some time ago. And um, so that's pretty important uh, in that country. Uh, sure. And so malicious compliance. I mean, just let that one sit on the tongue yeah. for a little bit. You go, <laughs> what, what, huh? <laughs> that was the leader telling right. Telling their people, right? No, no, no. This is malicious compliance. <laughs> How can compliance be malicious? <laughs> right? So it's the whole organization is a contradiction in its own terms, right? Uh, right. You can't work and follow all the rules, right? Um, great example, by the way, you know, for those who've worked in healthcare, um, mm. typical ward nurse needs to follow, um, so, uh, 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 our colleagues down at Macquarie University did the uh, did the study. Yeah. Um, they stopped counting at six hundred rules, right? So a ward nurse, just a ward nurse, needs yeah. to follow six hundred rules. Um, they stopped counting them. Then they asked the ward nurse, so "How many how many rules can you recite back to us?" Right? And, and the nurse goes, uh, "Oh, there's got to be something about hand hand washing. It's a hospital after all. Uh, there's probably something about you know uh, I don't know patient ID check or something. You right, know, right. Take the wrong chemicals into the wrong bodies and um and then um oh there's probably about you know stacking dishes in the break room or something. Right, right. Um, do you know that the average nurse could recite between two and three rules? Yeah. Yeah. Which means 597 rules are just gobbledygook nonsense made yeah. up by, by, by some occupational health and safety or other, you know, um, uh, input, which has no resemblance to actual work. Right. So anyway, I could go on well, about that. I think it's interesting because the, the way that we see some of this stuff manifest in uh, in my world um, is that we see these kind of lists of most sacreds. That, mm-hmm. that come out of the rules. And it's interesting because I always challenge organizations with that, that if you have so many rules that you have to come up with five or 10 that are extra yeah, special, yeah. then you might extra have special. too many rules, yeah. Yeah. right? Right. To yeah. begin with. Yeah. Um, but it, it kind of leads us down, down this conversation is that, that, you know, when, when we have something not so great happen, um, and we kind of go back and we dig through and of course we find where somebody didn't follow the rule or they forgot a rule or they missed something or, or they, they had a poor judgment, whatever we want to call it. Right. Um, and then we hold them to that rule after the event. Uh, we extract our pound of flesh uh, mm-hmm. or we go through and we basically say, you should have done this. You could have done this. What if you would have mm-hmm. done this? Um, mm-hmm. What impact does that really have on reporting of events and, and learning overall within oh, the organization? I think it's, yeah, no, it's, it's utterly intuitive, uh, the answer to that right. one. It kills it. 
It kills right. it. It kills it. Right. Um, so if you're a hop nerd, um, and you go into an organization, I think one of the, one of the, the highest goals should be to help the organization get rid of its most sacred, its golden rules, its, right. its 10 special safety rules or whatever the, the, the heck it might be. Um, for a very simple reason. Um, first, these rules are often so intuitive, um, you know, mm. don't smoke, uh, don't walk under a suspended load. Uh, you go, right. really? Right. right? <laughs> I mean, in medieval times, we had, we had myths about these things, right? Yeah. Don't, yeah. don't, don't look at a black cat, you know, right. because you'd be bewitched. Don't walk under a ladder, you know? Right. I mean, so, so we, we've made up, and, and in fact, you know, even in biblical times, we've got 10 mm. rules by which to live, you know? Right. Um, don't right. envy your neighbor's ox, you know, right. uh, or something. And so, <laughs> so these, these rules change, uh, as, as with the times, but, um, but they're mostly, uh, utterly intuitive. And so, um, the, um, uh, but there's an intermediate step because, you know, many people come back and say, well, the organization I'm working with is not willing to give them up. The least you can do is try to convince them to get rid of the, punitive management that happens after the supposed or putative right. violation of those rules right. um, because that's what kills it, right? It's not necessarily the existence of these guidelines or if you think that's pretty posters with yellow colors on it, so, oh, here's our most unimportant rules, right. you know. Right. I wonder how any, anybody would looks at it, but, you know, it right. doesn't matter. And, and by the way, how many leaders can recite them back to you because, <laughs> you know, just check that, you know. Oh, can you give me your 10 rules? You know? <laughs> I've done this. Right, they come up short, you know, they're like three or something, you know. So um, it's so cute. And then, of course, they start bumbling. Oh, well, it's all middle management's fault, you know, or right. or it's um, – or, uh, or they don't apply it to me because I sit at an office on my desk. Full day, you know, it's right, all, right, right. Um, <laughs> just, um, but the um, no, the research is, is crystal clear on this. I mean, Cody Pitzer yeah. puts it beautifully, right? If you have punitive management um, after the, the supposed uh, violation, again, that I hate mm. that word, but yeah. Um, yeah. deviation from or, or variation from these these life saving or golden rules or most sacred rules, um, you shut you shut up your organization. Yeah. You create, as Cody Pitzer said, a culture of risk secrecy. Mm. Right. Yeah. And I yeah. find that, I find that chilling, Sam. I'll give you an example. So I was working on a site yeah. where the, um, where the site manager tells me, um, I mean, it's, it's a hot climate where this was. So, you know, you go, okay, I understand this. No, I'm not coming out the, ch- out the shack, right? You go, well, why are you not coming out the shack? Right. Aren't you, right? We go back to DuPont, you know, which is a mm. bad idea, but you know, go back to right. DuPont, you know, <laughs> visible field leadership, you know, and all yeah. of that. Right. And so field leadership. No, 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 we don't do field. I don't do field no. leadership. And I said, so why did you do, why did you come out the shack? He says, if I come out the shack, the first thing that I'll see is guys violating this, the, the golden right. rules, which means I have to fire them, which means my project is not getting completed in time. So yeah. I hear no evil. I see no evil. I smell no evil. Yeah. I shut my face, my nose, my mouth. It's, you know, I'm hunkering down, not for COVID-19, but because mm. I need to get stuff done. If that doesn't indicate a culture of risk secrecy and sort of these two parallel universes, right, where you've got an organization as it is imagined in leaders and boards and sort of the accountability processes that they live by versus the actual organization, man, I don't know what is. Yeah. And I, that's what I, that's what I've always found interesting about that is that we, we take, usually it's the things that we know, um, 
kill and maim people in our organizations. And we create that fancy poster that we <laughs> you just mentioned mm-hmm. and plaster it on the wall. Mm-hmm. But then we start firing people for violations. And what we don't really, or what the organization seems to not understand is that we're creating exactly that. That's, that's exactly it. We're creating a really a silence around the things that can kill our people, the things that do kill our people in our, in our industries. And then we're point. shocked yeah. that people aren't reporting things uh, because uh, to kind and of, we're shocked to, when they're killed. Right. Exactly. <laughs> Which, we're, we're completely surprised. Well, and I, and I yeah. think it, I think yeah. it kind of leads into this, this last, uh, this last, uh, kind of thought that I wanted to ask you about. Um, we often measure these violations. We often measure, you know, everything. And again, back, back to power generation. That's, that's been my career for the vast majority of my life. Um, we like to measure more than most. Yeah, um, we tend to believe that if we can just observe enough and trend a graph enough, if we can just get people to report enough close calls, if we can just get people to report enough first aids that we'll finally be able to begin forecasting when bad things will happen, that we'll finally be able to predict the next fatality. Um, yeah. What would you say to folks out there that, that cling to that that idea that this data is has a has a good predictive capacity? Um, it doesn't have a good predictive capacity. So you, were saying, you, you can use profanity if you like. <laughs> I was trying to be very polite. Um, no, the research is crystal clear on this, Sam. It has crappy predictive capacity. In fact, it probably predicts the wrong way. First of all, if you're measuring violations, right, um, you're only measuring the numerator, not the denominator, right? Because it's always a ratio, yeah. right? You, you can't see everything, right? And so there's violations going on all the time. Otherwise, work can't get done. You know, remember the nurses, 597 rules that they didn't even know about, right? right. And so they're probably violating them and getting on with caring for patients, particularly yeah. now. So, um, so, so that sort of measurement is utterly useless. No, but as we have seen, um, and Rene Alberti has been very clear in, in, in the statistical basis for this, as your organization, organization gets safer, um, there be, there, there, the gap between how people are injured versus how they are killed grows dramatically, right? And so counting and measuring injuries as if they have some predictive capacity for the big one is nonsense. And if you're a really unsafe operation, like, uh, you know, mountaineering, uh, in the Himalayas, yeah, how you get injured is pretty much how you die. Because when right. you're injured, you do die, probably, right? right? So, but, <laughs> so right. the two overlap quite nicely, but, um, and a lot of people, anyway. So, uh, but if you're 10 to the minus six, you know, if you have, you know, one bad incident in, in a million events or something, then, um, then injuries have no predictive capacities. And in fact, the fewer injuries, you have the more likely it is that you're going to have a fatality. Yeah, right. look at Bacondo, right? Which yeah. which yeah. you know had a had a dubious anniversary just not long ago, yes. right? Was it last week? Um, it was, yeah. Yeah, I mean, terrible. Yeah. And, you know, and we all feel for the, for the guys and the families involved in these, mm-hmm. in these awful things. Um, but the, um, uh, so my recommendation is, is both to leaders and the hop nerds is if you want to predict the next fatality, Look at normal work and you are already doing that because what we have learned, right? From all the fatalities that I've been a part of investigating. Um, and I think others have, I know Todd has, right? They come from normal work, normal people doing Mm -hmm. normal work under normal circumstances of constraints, pressures, goal conflicts. And what we need to understand is why they are normally successful. How do they actually get this done normally? And if we don't understand that, we won't understand anything about the sacrifices they're making mm. to get there, to make it so. Right. Because you need to make sacrifices to get stuff done in the real world, right? right? right. Because we don't live in right. a perfect world. Exactly. We don't live in a world yeah. where you can write rules for how it's going to run because it's too complex, too unpredictable. Right. 
too yeah. curveball-y, right? right. So, <laughs> right. Um, it's, so, so look at normal work. Understand the sacrifices people make to get stuff done, and that will lead you to how people are going to get killed. Don't get in a tizzy about incidents or injuries or counts because – yeah. yeah, statistically, they're below the below the mm-hmm. noticeable difference anyway, completely. Right, right, right. right. That, because that, that's interesting. That, that's a place where uh, many, many organizations, many, many people get hung up on. Um, I, I'm sure it's, as you're aware, I, I get tons of hate mail uh, because I, I like to pick on this whole notion of zero. <laughs> Don't get me started. I I get tons. I I won't. I won't. I won't get you down there. I know you have to go in just a moment. (laughs) But you would be. uh, You you may or may not be shocked or surprised um, that just the amount of safety practitioners that do still cling to that uh, that idea of zero, or to this idea that managing lower level events prevents prevents larger events. There's still a lot of folks that cling to that. It's, it's, yeah, it's, uh, it's a myth. Uh, it's, yeah. uh, it's been proven wrong. Again, the safer the system gets, uh, the stupider right. the idea becomes. Right. Having a zero ambition is, is right out dangerous. All right. It, well, and, it's, and, uh, it, it's a relic. It belongs to a previous century exactly. and it was always a bad idea, right? We have to ditch it. If we're not moving as a profession, Sam, and, and rally all the hope nerds we can find right. to flush a zero down the loo, right. um, I, you know, I wouldn't be yeah. proud of who we are. Right. Well, and, and with, uh, on, on that note, this is kind of our, our famous question around here. I don't know, quite know how it came about, but any last words, any final words, any, any pro tips or, or any knowledge or wisdom that you'd like to impart on hot practitioners or leaders or safety folks out there, um, that, that, that any go-dos for them, anything that you'd like to share with them before we go? Sam, I think that the, what I would want to tell all the hop nerds, because, you know, this is in family, right? We're, we're this, we're this amazing community, um, that, uh, that, that, that is driven by a lot of, uh, research and insights and scholarship from a lot of, uh, 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 different people. Ultimately, what it boils down to though is we need to convince leaders and others in organization to once again have trust in their fellow human beings. Mm-hmm. Do not have systems of mistrust and accountability that run on, I don't trust you to do the right thing, right? All kinds of rules and checklists because I don't know whether I can trust you, you know, behind my back. And if that's the starting point that we're trying to get hope into organizations with, it's not going to work, right? We have to get people to trust each other again. And I think in the crisis in which we right now are, um, you see, you see both sides of that coin, right? You see mistrust and people throwing mud at each other and calling each other idiot and, on the other hand, you see amazing acts of human compassion and kindness and trust and a willingness to help and a reaching out and saying, you are my human fellow human being. We're in this together, right? Um, I think ultimately, um, if, if, if hope nerds can, uh, help spread that message of hope, of trust, of being inspired by what your fellow people do rather than being fearful of it, of, um, a, you know, to, to use the Greek words, a philanthropic mindset, your belief in the goodness of human beings rather than this misanthropic mindset, right? This belief in the badness and the right. bad motives of your fellow human beings. Man, we could change the world, Sam. We right. could change the world. Wow. Yeah. Absolutely everything would change, right? Well, thank you, sir. Thank you so much for coming on. Uh, Sydney Decker, ladies and gentlemen, everyone out there, again, thank you so much for joining us. I know our, our, our hop nerds, our listeners, our leaders, all those folks that, that tune in, they, they will absolutely, they'll absolutely love this one to death. So thank you once again. Pleasure. Happy to do it, Sam. Absolutely. Wow. Like, <laughs> I don't know what else to say other than, wow, I'm kind of speechless. And, uh, those that, that listen to the podcast know that that's kind of rare. 
<laughs> right? I mean, it's, it's Sidney Decker. How amazing. And I shared with him that he has been the most requested person to have on the podcast. If you're not, if you are not familiar with Sidney Decker, you should be. He has a website. He's easy to find. He has tons of great books. I think I can suggest all of them to you. Uh, as he mentioned, some, uh, you know, starting in the right place is probably important. Um, but one of the books that I share with folks constantly, I have a little box of them. I didn't share this with Sydney, but I keep them uh, and give to people all the time is the field guide to understanding human error. Uh, if I could make that mandatory reading, uh, for our workplaces, that's the one that I would make mandatory reading. So I think it's great. It's amazing. Uh, again, big, Huge, massive, massive thank you to Sidney Decker. Make sure you go follow along with him. Make sure you go tune in. Uh, he's got a great YouTube channel. He shares a lot of stuff there. He mentioned a couple things, such as the Safety Differently, the movie. He has a lot of great, great lectures posted there to YouTube as well. So go check those out. That's all I've got. I, again, I'm speechless. It was awesome. I liked it. I love it. I got to have more of it. Maybe one of these days we'll be able to have Sydney back. It would be amazing. That's all I've got. Until next time, this is Sam Goodman, the Hop Nerd, signing off. Bye, everybody. Bye. <laughs>